This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Oh, GYC, do you love Jesus? Yes, we love Jesus. Are you sure you love Jesus? I'm sure I love Jesus. And why do you love Jesus? Because he first loved me, that's the reason we all are all together. Oh, how I love Jesus, singing, oh, how I love Jesus, oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. How many of you, that's why you're here tonight? Amen. Because you love Jesus, amen? Amen. What an amazing day. I cannot tell you how excited I am right now. I'm about to jump out of my shoes. I'm so excited. We have the privilege of coming together from several countries, from several states, from several towns, from several spiritual experiences to seek Jesus at one time in one place through his word. I want you to know that before we begin tonight, I must ask for a few favors. Is Is that okay? My first favor is we must be praying through the entire sermon. Can you say amen? Can you do that for me? I want you to be praying through the entire sermon. Lord, speak to me. That's the first prayer. And the second prayer is, Lord, give me courage to do what you want me to do. Are you with me? Lord, speak to me. And Lord, give me courage to do what you're calling me to do. My second favor is, is that, If God speaks to you throughout the message or something resonates with your heart, we don't need to applause, we don't need to clap, we can just say amen. Amen. Can you say amen? Amen. Now, amen is not a black word. It is not just for black churches. Can you say amen? amen? And for some reason, people think if you say amen, oh, that that's the black church. No, the Bible says that's going to be the last word when all is said and done. Everyone will say amen. Amen. Noah's going to say amen. 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 And so those are my only two requests. Pray, pray, and pray. But before we officially begin, I want you to bow your heads with me and you can kneel as much as possible. Mighty God, everlasting Father, we are here before you in Louisville. We have not come to this place for more of the same. We have not come to this place just to check off our list another GYC that we have attended. We have come to experience something that will move the kingdom of God on earth forward. 
And so we pray, Lord, that don't just speak to us in an average way. Lord, just don't give us the same old sermons. We are praying that at this moment, God would be in this place. And because we sense that God is here, let every voice be hushed. And that the world, when it has come to an end and you take over the affairs of this planet, may the universe look back in Louisville and say that out of this little city, God had begun something that has started the domino effect of the final events of Earth's history. Father, we are ready to go home. Revive us again and help us above all else to see, to know, and to love Jesus. This is our prayer, and we trust that you will help this to be our experience. For we ask in the mighty name of Jesus, let all of God's people say, The title of my message is Come Back. Come Back. I want you to know tonight that as we begin this presentation, that beliefs lead to behaviors. You see, there is a story about a young man. Today was the day that this young man was going to finally approach the prettiest girl in his high school history class, Sandra, and invite her out in his new Honda Accord for some food and fun. Beliefs lead to behaviors. He believed that she was single and clearly waiting for the right guy to come along and treat her as she deserved, like a respectful, intelligent, young, seven-day Adventist young woman. And he believed that he was the man for the job because beliefs lead to behaviors. As the class bell rang, he hunted her down amidst the passing students. As they left their classrooms for the last time that week, as she turned around, startled by his hand, he politely apologized and began to start the small talk. Beliefs lead to behaviors. As he finally came to his well-crafted appeal for dinner and a movie, she smiled and said, well, my boyfriend has a football game this weekend, and I'll probably be spending it with him. He plays for the rival school's football team, but you're so cute for asking. And I walked away devastated. <laughs> because beliefs lead to behaviors. You see, since the dawn of time, this has always been true. Eve believed that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Her belief didn't make it true, and it didn't make it any less impactful on human history. And so she ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Beliefs lead to behaviors. Cain believed that he could be accepted by God through the sacrifice of his best fruits without blood. And so he came boldly before the Lord without that which God had requested and expected to be accepted by God because beliefs lead to behaviors. Even in the dark ages, Luther believed 
that painful penance was required for forgiveness. So he crawled up the steps of an enormous cathedral upon his knees, begging for God's mercy on every single step because beliefs lead to behaviors. There was a man inside the KKK that believed he was superior to a black man simply because of the color of his own skin. So we hung the man and his family from the highest tree in town because beliefs lead to behaviors. There is a man that believed that he was more worthy of voting because of his gender. So he instituted laws preventing women from voting because beliefs lead to behaviors. Hitler believed in the superiority of his people. So he systematically executed millions that were different because beliefs lead to behaviors. Hutus believed that Tutsis were a scourge to be removed from the earth. So they hunted them down with machetes and killed them a million in three months because beliefs lead to behaviors. The Japanese at one point believed that Koreans were beneath them. So they turned their women into comfort women because beliefs lead to behaviors. There was a young woman last year, sat on the phone and she could not pray. She could not study her Bible. She could not attend church. Why is it that these behaviors were so difficult? Well, as the conversation went on, it also became clear that she believed that God hated her. And she said, Sebastian, all I'm praying is that God doesn't hate me, that God has not cast me off, that God is no longer interested in my eternal well-being. It makes perfect sense why you don't want to come to his house. It makes perfect sense why you don't want to read his word. It makes perfect sense why you don't want to fellowship with his people in his church. It makes perfect sense you don't want to do things on his time. And you definitely are not pursuing his will because beliefs lead to behaviors. But you see, among the most important beliefs in life is who you believe who you are. It is what you believe about identity. But unfortunately for many of us, we are going through an identity crisis and in many ways our church is going through the same thing. Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, he gives an account of what happens to the human soul when it doubts its own purpose. He says, for the secret of man's being is not only to live, but to live for something definite. Without a firm notion of what he is living for, man will not accept life and will rather destroy himself than remain on earth. You see, some people believe that we are constrained to be who we are by the categories by which they separate us. So Marxists believe that we are interpreted by categories of class. Freudians believe that we are separated by childhood neuroses. Feminists by gender. 
pop commentators by your generation. Oh, you are the silent generation. These are the baby boomers. These are the gener Gen Xers. These are the millennials. This is the helicopter generation. So therefore, we believe that, oh, I'm constrained to be this way. So we explain our behaviors. We explain what we like and what we don't like because I'm a millennial. Because I'm a Gen Xer, I'm all about family life. When the Bible is all about family life, it doesn't matter your generation. But you see, other people believe that we must have the courage to be. In other words, we must decide who we want to be. I remember growing up, my father used to tell me that one of his favorite poems was the poem about Invictus, captain of my own soul. I'm the one that determines my fate. My father used to tell me, Sebastian, when people hear the name Sebastian Braxton, you determine what comes to their minds. You see, it was already the seed planted in the soul to say, you decide who you want to be. You must have the courage to be who you want. Take control of your life. Carve out your place out of the mountain of time and choose your position. And as this view sees it, we all have the freedom, yes, the terrible responsibility to be whatever we want to be. All it takes is courage and willpower. And we can actually, we are told, invent ourselves. Other people believe that we are constituted to be. This is the oak is in the acorn theory in new age mindsets. This view that sees each of us as not only having a soul, but also a soul companion. They call it this guardian spirit called a daemon directs us even in the choice of our bodies and parents. So the secret of life, according to these new age gurus, is to read our life stories and glimpse the guardian spirit in action and give it free reign in our lives. Only so will the acorn become the oak and each of us grow to be the people we were destined to become. You see, each of these three positions, they contain a grain of truth. To some extent, we are constrained by our circumstances to become the people we are today. I didn't decide to be born in a Jamaican family. God decided that. To some degree, we are constrained by our circumstances. I didn't decide to be male. God decided that. He decided what generation I was to be born. He decided what generation we were to be born. You see, GYC and I are the same age. I was baptized the year that GYC started. So I tell people, I don't know what the Seventh-day Adventist Church is without GYC. In my mind, it has always been in my spiritual experience. But the reality is there are people who know what the church was like before GYC. They remember the burdens and the fire that led to its birth and its creation. Because there were young people who were tired of being entertained. There were young people who wanted the Bible and the Bible only. There were young people who were sick and tired of the fact that why is it I can't invite my friend to church because I'm not sure what my pastor is going to preach. 
Young people who recognize that why is it you gotta pull teeth just to get your church to do what it was created to do? Somebody doesn't know what I'm talking about. That is why GYC was started. We don't have to wait on others. We don't have to wait on some adult or deep pockets in order to do God's work and to move the kingdom of God forward. We already have a father who has deep pockets. And so we recognize that we don't believe just being constrained to be, but we also have to recognize that to some extent, it does take courage to be a Christian. Courage to be our true selves, to be authentic and to live an authentic life. You see, we live in a time where people are afraid to tell people they're Adventists. I was sitting by the elevator just a couple days ago. And as I came around, I saw a young lady and I began to make conversation. She had a very interesting thing on her back. And I said, oh, what's that? She said, oh, well, you know, I'm just here for a conference. So clearly she didn't know I was Adventist. So I'm like, I know what conference you're here for. <laughs> I can see it on the name tag. But I didn't say anything. I just wanted to see if she would tell me that she was Adventist. If this was GYC. Because we all know the conversation. We start talking to someone and we beat around the bush. We're ashamed to tell people why we're here. We're ashamed to tell people on the bus, on the train, up in the gas station, oh, well, why are you doing this? Why are we ashamed? It takes courage to be. There is no question. Someone has to decide in their mind tonight that I'm tired of being a coward because a Christian and a coward are not synonymous. You cannot be both. If you are a Christian, by definition, you are not a coward. And if you are a coward, by definition, you are not a Christian. Amen. Amen. This church was not born by people who were cowards. This church was not born by people who were afraid to be different. It was born by people who were doubted and laughed at when they sold their fields waiting for Jesus to come. Went through the disappointment and still stayed with the Lord. Amen. These are the people that taught us it takes courage to be. And to some extent, we are constituted to be something. The Bible says that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. But the biblical position is not being constrained to be. It is not the courage to be. It is not the constitution to be. It is called to be. I want you to take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We believe that we were called to be what we were created to be. All of a sudden, this call comes, but it's not coming out of nowhere. It goes all the way back to the beginning of time. When you're there, you can say amen. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26, a verse so familiar to us. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. I want to make some observations about this text. The Bible says that God, when he was looking at making man, he did not look at something else. This was not completely a unique creature. The Bible says, let us make man in our image. In other words, man cannot understand himself if he does not know God. We must recognize that being made in the image of God must determine the fact that to understand who I am and who I'm called to be requires me to understand God. The least amount of knowledge of God will move us one step forward towards our own identity, who we were created and called to be. But you see, the text doesn't stop there. It says, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Now, the important point here is twofold. Number one, the Bible doesn't say that they were born rulers. No, the Bible says, let them have dominion. You cannot give dominion if you don't have dominion. So in other words, God had dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the, 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 the creeping things in the cattle upon the earth, and he gave it over to Adam. But before he gave Adam dominion, he made sure that Adam was like him. God is not willing to give dominion over to someone that is not like him. Before I give you dominion over this, you must be like me. So in other words, if God is giving dominion over to Adam and to Eve, he must conclude in his mind that because they are in the image of God, they will rule, they will exercise their dominion no different than I would. They are fit representatives. If that is clear, let's say amen. amen. In other words, in order for Adam and Eve to truly be who they are, their focus must be to be 100% representatives of Jesus. 100% representatives of God. There must be no deviation. They should be able to say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Because I am in his image. That's what they were created to say. That's what they were made to be. But of course, something went wrong. And I have to make this point before we go any further forward. To represent God, to be God-like, to be his representative is what it means to be a human being. This is not just a church thing. This is not just, oh, we need to be restored into the image of God. We've fallen. No, the fall of humanity. So therefore, to represent God is what it means to be a human being. And the least, the less and less that we represent Christ, the less and less human we are. But in case we didn't accept that point, God had people throughout every single generation, every single generation that he was calling to say, this is my representative, this is my representative. This is my representative. But every single time, even when he had a nation, they failed. 
they came up short. And so just then when all hope was lost, there were God's people, the Jews, supposedly his representatives on earth, deep in darkness. But the Bible says when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. Who could be a better representative than his own son? I want you to go with me to the book of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1 in verse 18. John chapter 1, verse 18. Are you there? Can you say amen? The Bible says, no one has seen God when? At any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has what? Declared Him. He has revealed Him. He has made the invisible God visible. In other words, when the Bible is talking here about Christ and saying, no one has seen God at any time, but up until this point, Jesus saw God all the time. So when Jesus comes down and he says, no man has seen God at any time, but Jesus has seen God. And he comes down and he says, but this man, this son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he is in close communion, he is in close relationship with the Father, he has declared him, he has revealed him, he's made him known. But you see, Christ recognized that as he came down to fulfill humanity's purpose, to eventually take us back and show us what is possible for a human being to become. What exactly is God's ideal for his children? What did he have in mind when he made mankind? Christ says, I've come to present this ideal. But Jesus recognized that he was not just coming down to brag and say, no one can represent God better than me. Jesus wasn't just coming down to say, oh, I've revealed God. Good luck. I hope you get your act together. No, the Bible says that Christ was not content just living to represent God himself, but he issued a call. I want you to go with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 19. When you're there, you can say amen. The Bible says, beginning in verse 18, And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, because they were what? They were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, what two words? Follow me. With those two words, Jesus has changed the course of human history. You see, we don't recognize that when Jesus spoke to Peter and to Andrew, and eventually to James and John, the movement that Christ began by saying, I am living the life that God has called humanity to live. And I want to invite you into this experience. 
I want you to become my disciple. I'm not just going to teach you how to be a good Christian. I'm not just going to teach you how to be a good man. I'm not just going to teach you how to be a good believer. This is about what it means to be a human being. I'm going to show you how to live according to God's ideal. And so he says, follow me, Jesus said. And when Jesus said that, he was saying, stop living for your parents. Stop living for your country. Stop living for your culture. Stop living for prestige, for power, and for pleasure. I need you to live for the audience of one man, and that person is Jesus Christ. You see, right here in this room, we may be at GYC, but it doesn't mean that we haven't lost our focus. People come to conferences all the time and miss Christ. But I got to sit and listen to Mark Finley. But I got to sit and listen to this favorite speaker. But I, I got to get my questions answered on relationships. But did you get Christ? There are people in this room that are going to leave GYC delivered. People are going to leave this conference going on to do amazing things for the kingdom of God because God was speaking for them, because they were seeking Christ. And Christ found them. And Christ says, the call is to follow me. But when Jesus said, follow me, he was saying, it's not about being original. It's about following the original. Too many times we're dyeing our hair. We're getting weird haircuts. We're buying the latest shoes here and the latest that there to make ourselves unique. You are never more unique than when you are following Christ. You want to be your true self. Stop following fashion. Follow Christ. He says, follow me. And Jesus was saying, stop all the diversion and the distractions of life and living. Come to a place of singleness of mind. We must come back to that place where we say, look, the very first thing we do in the morning is go to Christ. I watched a presentation and a man said, if you are between the ages of 15 and 35 years old, the very first thing you do in the morning is grab your phone. Somebody in this room knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, you may be at GYC, you may be here, oh yeah, we had a prayer session, but as soon as you wake up in that hotel, where's my phone? Nobody is saying, where's my Lord? Where's the audience chamber? Where can I go to get my blessing? I need to connect with Christ first before you check your phone. Soon as people arrive at GYC in the hotel, how do you get on the Wi-Fi? How do you get connected to Christ? Somebody better say amen. You know I'm telling the truth. Hey, do you have the passcode? Do you have the password? Oh, you got an account. Can I use your account? Why? So you can get on Instagram? So you can Snapchat, this is what I'm doing at GYC. While we're out sending messages to others, Christ is sending messages to us, not getting through. Jesus says, follow me. Notice that for Peter and Andrew, I want you to look at the text again. The Bible says that Jesus called them, and in verse 20, they immediately left their nets and they followed him. This is so important. It was assumed that to follow Christ meant forsaking their nets. 
Jesus didn't say, forsake your nets. He just said, follow me. But they assumed because Christ called me to follow him, I must leave these nets. I cannot be a fisherman and a follower. But you see, too many of us are trying to follow Jesus without forsaking. We want to be seven-day Adventists. We want to worship on the correct day. We want to be at church. We want to be blessed. We want to be in Sabbath school. But we also want our worldly stuff too. We still want to go back to our worldly music. We still want to go back to our worldly dress. Why? But you know, we're so smart and we're so politically correct because we only wear those skirts when we're with our non-Adventist friends. We only watch those movies when we're with our non-Adventist friends because they won't judge us. No, because you won't be convicted because you know how to behave inside the church, but then you get unbelieving friends so you can do the evil in your own heart. Jesus says, follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is why we are resisting the call that Christ is giving. We don't really want to follow Jesus. We want to do what the book of Isaiah says when seven women take hold of one man. Say, let us wear our own clothes, eat our own food, but let us be called by your name. Jesus says, follow me. But you see, there are some of us who are forsaking, but we are not following. You see, we may leave worldly things behind. We may change our diets. We may give up Christless communities and painful habits, but a Christ-like life is not, is more than denial. It is decisive. It is devotional. We do not just shun evil, we pursue good. You know, some of us live in here as if we're gonna, as if sin is a physical disease. As if it's something you can, oh, I can't hang around with those people because you see how they dress. Because they dress that way, that's the people you need to be hanging out with. Amen. Not because you're trying to become like them, but because you're trying to win them. Call them higher. But many of us live like, oh, I need to shun the, the community of these people and I need to shun away from these things. How are you going to reach the heathen? You're not with the heathen. How are you going to win souls? You're not with souls. Everybody wants to be a missionary where they're not. Oh, I can go and go to Africa and witness, but back in L.A., I got nothing to say. Anybody can pretend to be spiritual for two weeks. But Jesus says, follow me. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, if you asked 20 good men today what they thought was the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened. A negative term has been substituted for a positive one. And this is more than just a play on words. You see, the negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good for others, but of going without good things ourselves. 
as if our abstinence and their happiness was not the important point. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, I don't think this is the Christian virtue of love. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to play within the mud in the slums because he cannot imagine what it is like when he is offered a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I don't want this point to be lost. You see, whatever we are struggling with here tonight, it is easy for you and for me to say, oh Lord, this lust that I'm struggling with, this jealousy that I'm struggling with, this, this appetite that I'm struggling with, the, the problem is my desire is too strong. Just go without this, more fasting, more neglect, more abstinence, no, 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 no. The question is not why am I trying to eat this late at night? Why am I trying to wear this? Why am I trying to listen to this? Why am I trying to have a relationship with this person? That is not the question. The question is, why are you so satisfied with something so cheap? We are too easily pleased. I sit down with a young girl one time and she said, you know, Sebastian, I'm in this relationship with this unbeliever. And I said, listen, you know what you have to do. You're not coming to me thinking I'm going to rubber stamp your relationship. You and I both know you don't have one biblical verse to support what you're doing. And if we want an example, let's go to Solomon and let's see where that got him. She looked at me and she said, yeah, but you know, he's such a nice guy and he's kind and he's loving and he's giving and he's faithful and all these different things. And I said, sister, let me, let me give you two options. You can have a young man who is kind and loving and faithful and he cooks for you and rubs your feet and all that, all that stuff. But when it comes time to go to church, he's not interested. He may even be pleasant. Hey, that's your religion. But eventually it's going to get to you when you realize that you're praying with your girlfriends and they're praying with their husbands, but you can't pray with yours. That's option A. Or you can have option B. He's kind, he's loving, he's faithful, he rubs your feet, he does all that, but the man is a man of God. Amen. Those are your options. So tell me, which one would you prefer? Well, I'd love to have a man of God. Then go after the man of God. Do not allow yourself to settle for this. God is able to give you much more than this. Getting off my notes. The Bible says, follow me. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You see, discipleship to Jesus is the practical outliving of the gospel. It is the Christ-focused life that experiences the soul-focused transformation we do the following, Jesus does the making. I like that. Since the first time I heard it, I've always liked it. You do the following, Jesus does the making. 
Don't try to do Jesus's work. You do the following. Jesus does the making. In these two words, we are being called back to what we were created to be. But brothers and sisters, among the most important things to follow Jesus is to follow him in what he believed. You see, I've come to a resolution as we look at our identity as individuals and as a church that I want to believe what Jesus believed because if beliefs lead to behaviors and I want to behave like Jesus, do you want to behave like Jesus? Yes, amen. So if beliefs lead to behaviors, then I want to believe what Jesus believed. Can you say amen? And let me just take you on a journey. Jesus believed that men shall not live by, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus believed that there was one God, that there was a Father in heaven, and that there was a Holy Spirit that proceeds from the Father that he could send, and that Jesus also believed that he had glory with the Father before the world was. Jesus believed, according to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4, that God who made them male and female in the beginning and instituted the institution of marriage and believed that God had made them male and female not only in the beginning, but he gave them the gift of marriage. And God says, and what God has joined together, let not men put asunder. God didn't believe in divorce. Jesus believed that man by nature is evil, that he is defiled by the things that proceed from his heart. Jesus believed that when he was walking on the earth, he told the disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning. He told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired you. He believed in a great controversy. Jesus believed that his life, his death, and his resurrection would provide atonement for humanity. Jesus believed that no man could enter the kingdom of God unless he was born of the water and of the spirit. Jesus believed that the growth of the Christian is a process. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. Jesus believed that upon this truth that he is the Christ, the Son of God, that he would build his church. Jesus has a church. Can you say amen? amen. And upon this truth that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He believed that in the time near his coming, that his disciples should be giving meat in due season. That's called present truth. And he believed that he was the true shepherd of his fold and he would bring his other sheep in other folds to his fold and bring them into complete unity. Jesus believed that the Sabbath was made for men and he made it his custom to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he affirmed that the heavens and the earth would pass away before the law would pass away. Jesus believed in the gift of prophecy because he looked at his disciples on the Mount of Olives and he said, and if when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Jesus believed in prophets. 
Jesus believed in spiritual gifts in ministries. Jesus believed that he was going to go to his father's house and that he was going to prepare a place for us and that he was coming back to receive us unto himself, that where he is, there we may be also. Jesus believed, according to John 11, that when his friend Lazarus was dead, that Lazarus was asleep. And Jesus believed, according to John 5, verses 28 and 29, that there were two resurrections, the resurrection unto condemnation and the resurrection unto life. Jesus believed that eventually all who cling to sin and sin itself would be destroyed. Just to summarize, the book Medical Ministry, page 49, says, Christ was a seventh-day Adventist to all intents and purposes. You see, what that means is if Jesus was alive today, the question we should be asking ourselves is, if he was walking around, what church would he join? But the prophet already told us. He was a seven-day Adventist. So when you look at the Gospels and you're looking at the life of Christ, you're looking at the life of what a seven-day Adventist should be living. You're not just looking at, oh, that's just Christ. He's just a general Christian. No, 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 no. We believe what Jesus believed. But the problem is, even though we believe what he believed, we don't live the way he lived. Which tells me we don't believe what he believed. We mentally agree. It makes sense. But that's not faith. Because Jesus believed these things, he lived a certain way. And when you look at all the criticisms of unbelievers, you never find the criticism of Jesus himself. All people want to do in the world is redefine Jesus. Oh, here's the real Jesus on the History Channel. He actually grew up in this village. This was, he actually wasn't really that poor. But they can't argue with the man's life and impact. They can't argue with the fact that you can't find his body. I want to believe what Jesus believed. So I go into my closing. I want to read a quote. I'm going to ask my wife to come out. So we go into our appeal. Dr. James Allen Francis, he wrote these words to the First Baptist Union Youth in 1926 under the title, The Real Jesus. He said, let us now turn to the story. A child is born in an obscure village. He is brought up in another obscure village. He works in a carpenter shop until he is 30 and then for three brief years is an itinerant preacher proclaiming a message and living a life. He never writes a book, he never holds an office, he never raises an army, he never has a family of his own, he never owns a home, he never goes to college, he never travels 200 miles from the place he was born. He gathers a little group of friends about him, teaches them his way of life. While still a young man, the tide of popular feelings turned against him. The band of followers forsakes him. One denies him, another betrays him. He is turned over to his enemies. He goes through the mockery of a trial. 
He is nailed on a cross between two thieves, and when dead, he is laid in a borrowed grave by the kindness of a friend. Those are the facts of his human life. He rises from the dead. Today we look back across 1900 years and ask what kind of a trail has he left across the centuries? When we try to sum up his influence, all the armies that ever marched, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned are absolutely minuscule in their influence on mankind compared to this one solitary life. He concludes by saying, I remind you, I ask you to pause a moment and think of this thing that Christians believe. We are talking about great adventures. I remind you that there must be a great adventure in faith before there is a great adventure in action. No man has ever done a great thing. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.